Welcome to Paranormal Heart, a place where people can talk about their paranormal experiences. With your host, Cat Ward. Hey everyone, welcome back to Paranormal Heart. I'm your host, Cat Ward. Folks, today I have a very, very interesting guest. He is the founder of Bronxville Paranormal Society, and he's he has his own experiences that have really, really intrigued me. I've heard him on other shows, and I just had to get him to talk about it on my show as well. So please help me welcome Al Santariga. Hey, Al. Thank you, Cat. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. Nope, my pleasure. So yeah, this um, this encounter that you had several years ago that I heard on another talk show, oh wow, that really intrigued me, and I just had to get you to talk about it. Yeah, you know, um, it's uh, I call it the, the David Berkowitz son of Sam devil worshiping experience. Um, for people who who are not old enough to know who son of Sam was or David Berkowitz. He was a serial killer here in New York State in around 1980, 81. And uh, Sam was actually his neighbor's dog that he said used to talk to him and tell him to go out and kill people. So, um, you know, I had an experience in his building. I haven't talked about it in, in 29 years because everybody who was involved with it um, we're still on the job because it was an on, job, on the job experience and I waited for everybody to retire. So when I spoke about it last month on that other uh, show, it was the first time I ever spoke about it. So, I mean, I get a lot of positive reviews from the show and a lot of people are contacting me about coming on and talking about it. You were the first one. So I agreed to you right away. So here I am. And I'm, I'm thankful that you did. <laughs> No, it's my pleasure. Believe me. So you just let me know when you want me to get started and we'll start rocking and rolling. Well, have at her. We're ready. Oh, okay. So um, 1989, I got hired at the post office in uh, Yonkers, which is a big city in New York State. It's, I think, the fourth largest city in the state. And I was working up in the west, the northwest uh, post office. And on one of the routes, I was actually going out with this guy, Stanley. I mean, not Stanley, I'm sorry, Stephen. And Stephen was training me. Stephen was a senior guy. He was a, what we call the uh, old timer. <laughs> and what I am now, but um, he, he took me out for the first two weeks and trained me. And he told me about a route. We'll call it Route 28. And he told me about this route. And he said, um, Listen, if you ever go into this building, and he gave me the number of the building, he said, do yourself a favor and never go down in the basement. So I said, okay, why, why, why can't I go down in the basement? You know, and he's like, well, his best friend, we'll call him Peter. Peter had that route for many, many years. And he was there when David Berkowitz was there. And this is a very high end 
neighborhood. Everybody, and there was a, uh, you know, a, a doorman that was 24-7. There was an Olympic-sized swimming pool in the back with a tiki bar and a, an ice cream bar and a, a barbecue pit and the whole nine yards. And everybody who lived in this building was a professional. This was built, this building was built right next to a, uh, one of the biggest hospitals in the city with a, an executive park across the street where all the doctors had their offices. So there was doctors and nurses and lawyers and um, teachers and business executives all lived in this building. So this was a really high-end building. It was a really, really nice luxury building and, and North Yonkers at the time. So his friend, Peter, who, who did this building for years and years and years and got along with all the, all the residents, um, after David Berkowitz was arrested, now David Berkowitz, son of Sam, he was uh, known to be a cultist, and he was involved in a devil-worshipping cult that worshipped in the park that was right next door to this building. And I forgot who the leader of the cult was, but it was in that link that I sent you. It talks about all the stuff about the park and, and all the devil-worshipping stuff. And uh, David's uh, apartment, which was like up on the fourth or fifth floor, would overlook the backyard where the pool was and would overlook the street that was um, actually had an a aqueduct running in front of it. So what they did is when they put the aqueduct in front of this, this street, they created um, a street behind it so people could park their cars and walk down into their houses from the back. And one of these people's houses um, was this cop called Sam. Sam, owned, Sam was a police officer and had a German shepherd. And Dave, uh, David Berkowitz would look out his back window or his bedroom window, and he would see the dog up at the top of the steps by the mailbox by the street just sitting there, and he said the dog would talk to him, and the dog would tell him to go kill people, and Berkowitz became the 44 caliber killer and the whole nine yards. But anyway, getting back to Peter, Peter was in that building during that time period, and he delivered there, and like I said, it was a high-end building. It was, people in the building were great people, and one day he had to use the bathroom um, but the bathroom on the main floor wasn't available because the doorman wasn't around and the doorman had the key to it. So you knew that there was a bathroom down on the first floor of the parking garage, which led out to the back of the pool area. And he had been down to that pool area many times to deliver stuff to, to the you know people on, on who lived there, packages and so on and so forth. So he knew the bathroom down there was always open. So he went down into this basement. I believe it was a Halloween, one, one Halloween and he went down into this basement and he was doing his business. And as he was sitting there doing his business, he heard chanting and he started to smell smoke. So he came a little nervous. He thought there was a fire in the basement. And when he opened up the bathroom door to see what was going on, he seen between four and six people, hooded figures chanting in a language that he never understood with black billowing smoke coming out of like a pentagram that was lit on the floor of the parking garage and out of this black smoke, this gray smoke came out of and from this gray smoke be appeared to become like a demon or the devil or whatever had turned into an entity and this entity went over to this guy Peter 
and told him, he said, for what you've seen here today, I will have your soul. Now, Peter freaked out and went back upstairs and jumped in his car and went back to the post office and told the manager. And I said, I'm not going back into that building ever again. You know, I've seen the devil. And Peter was a Polish guy. He was very religious. It was a Polish section of Yonkers. And um, he was very religious. And he said, I'm not going back to that building. As a matter of fact, I'm not doing that route anymore. And he took like a six-month leave of absence. And during this six months, this guy, Peter, his whole life fell apart. His wife left him, took the kids. He lost the house. He was just became an alcoholic. He was just a mess. And Stephen, who was his best friend, was trying to help him through this. And while all this was going on, you know, they had other people holding down the route. Um, just un unassigned regulars holding the route down because they always expected Peter to come back. But while Peter was out, another route opened up in central Yonkers at a central post office. And he took that route just to get out of that, to be away from the, the devil worshipers and everything. And he went to this other route in central Yonkers. And there he got a route that was in a really nice neighborhood, a residential neighborhood, all private homes. And he actually got an apartment on the route. And he's, all of a sudden, his life started to change again for the better. He he, he became uh, he cleaned up. He wasn't an alcoholic anymore, and he was talking about getting back together with his wife and kids, and everything is going good. And he's there for like six months or whatever. And at the end of his route, there was a street that had like four houses on. It was a dead end, and at the end of the dead end was like a like a, a meadow with a big a tree in the middle of it. I don't know if it was a cypress tree or an oak tree or whatever it was. And every day he would deliver those last four houses on his route. At one point, he started to get to the last house. And then every day he would be confronted by a black cat. But this cat wasn't a normal black cat. This cat was like the size of a pit bull. And this cat would attack him every day. So he was taking the mail back to the post office and putting it on hold for that that family. So after a couple of weeks, they called the post office and they said, you know, why aren't we getting any mail? Everybody else on the block is getting mail. We're not getting any mail. So the supervisor said, well, I'll talk to the carrier when he comes back and we'll find out what the reason is. And when he got back, Stephen said, well, you know, there's a black cat that attacks me every day. I can't get to their mailbox. The cat won't let me get to the mailbox. It's just, you know, it's a big cat. I sprayed him with the dog spray. It has no effect on the cat. I'm not going to get mauled by this thing. He thought it was the people who lived in that apartments and that house's cat. He said, tell these people to keep their cat inside and they'll get their mail. Now, what Stephen didn't know was my brother-in-law was Peter's um, floater. He did the route when Peter was off. So when my brother-in-law got back to the building, he asked my brother-in-law, "Did you ever have you ever seen a cat on that route? My brother-in-law said, no, I never see a cat out there. You know, Pete told me about it, but I never see one out there. My brother-in-law had been at, on the job for maybe three years at that point. So then when the truck driver came back, he asked Peter's truck driver, the guy who delivers the packages, and he says, you know, you've been here 10 years. Have you ever seen a black cat out there? And he says, no, no, no. There's a couple of people who have dogs, but they're in the backyard, but there's no cats. I've never seen any cat, you know? So nobody's seen this cat but Pete. Time goes on. So then the next day was a Saturday. That was on a Friday. The next day was a Saturday. So the supervisor decided to take all these people's these people's mail out to them and talk to them about 
keeping their cat inside. So he goes there, he figures Saturday's a good day, everybody's out cutting the grass and working on the house. Let me go by, and he knocks on the door, the people answer the door, and he says, here, I'm sorry, here's your mail, you know. Um, unfortunately, if you don't keep your cat inside, you're going to have to move your mailbox, uh, you know, put it on the fence up the street a little bit, um, because Pete can't get here because your cat is attacking him. And the people just looked at the supervisor like he had two heads, and they're like, <laughs> we don't have any cat. And he goes, well, there's a big black cat that's like the size of a pit bull that's attacking Pete every day, and that's why you're not getting your mail. And he says, we, you know, we've been here 10 years. We've never seen a cat on this block. So no one knows. No one's seen this cat. So and then he gives them the mail, and they said, okay, we, you know, we'll do we'll, – we'll, move our mailbox over to the next-door neighbor's mailbox, which was only like 20 feet away, and Pete can deliver our stuff when he delivers their stuff, and we'll just pick it up there um, because we don't know where this cat is, and we want to get our mail every single day. So, yeah, time goes on, time goes on. Now the cat, after a few months, and it's getting close to the end of the summer. I don't know if that's Labor Day or Memorial Day. I can never remember which holidays they are, but it's getting close to the end of the summer, and now – this cat starts talking to Peter, not physically saying words, but like mental telepathy. And he's telling Peter, your soul is mine. Your soul is mine. Don't forget what I told you. For what you've seen that day, your soul is mine. By the end of this summer, I will have your soul. Now, Peter's freaking out. He goes back and he tells the supervisor, he says, listen, you know, this cat, speaking to me mental telepathy and then supervisor thinks Peter's losing his mind. <laughs> Peter's telling my my brother in law, he's telling my brother in law the story and my brother in law's like, dude, I don't know what you what you're seeing out there, but I've never seen a cat out there, you know? He's telling the truck driver. Nobody it's not that nobody's believing him, it's just that nobody else has experienced this stuff. So end of the summer comes around and Peter never comes back to the office. So the supervisor, truck driver is the last guy in off the road. And he says, could you do me a favor, Joe? Can you run out to the end of the Peter's route and see if he's finished delivering the route? Because, you know, it's Saturday. I want to go home. You know, it's the end of the holidays coming up and I want to go home. So Joe drives out to the end of the route and goes right to the last block. And as he pulls down the street, there's Peter hanging from this big giant tree with his mail sack wrapped around his neck, and he's just hanging there, hung oh, himself. Oh, no. Wow. So, yes, it was horrible. So he jumps in the truck, and he runs to the closest business, which happened to be a bowling alley right around the, close, right around the corner. He dials 911, tells them what's going on, calls the supervisor. Supervisor goes out there, and sure as shit, um, just like that demon said to him in that apartment building, and just like that cat said to him during that summer, um, by the end of the summer, his soul would be taken, and he and he committed suicide. Or at least they, you know, he, they believe he committed suicide on that route. And the and the crazy thing about it is, after Peter, you know, after Peter passed away, my brother-in-law took over that route and held that route down for like ten years, and never seen a cat. Now, when Steve is telling me this story, I'm taking it with a grain of salt because I don't know if he's just pulling my leg. Right. If he's being serious, but, but Steve is a big guy. He's like six, five, 300 pound, big Polish guy. And he's got tears in his eyes when he's telling me stories because he was his best friend. So my gut is telling me, he's telling me the truth, but he doesn't know my brother-in-law worked at that station and was Peter's floater. 
So I lived around the corner from my brother-in-law at the time. So when I went home, I called my brother-in-law up and I said, hey, any truth to this rumor? And I, and I explained it to him. And he said, yeah, yeah, that everything that they told you was true. Everything happened. He really hung himself on that tree. And I was like, wow, I, you know, I couldn't believe that, you know, this guy, everything this guy told me was the truth. So time goes by and my boss comes to me one day and he says, listen, uh, 20, nobody bid on 28 route. It's up, it, it, you know, um, it's going to have to assign it to somebody somewhere down the line, but it's going to be, you know, after the holidays, can, can you do me a favor and just hold it down through the winter and in the summer, you know, we'll put it up for bid. You have a problem with that? And I said, I don't have a problem with it because A, it was a, a beautiful route. B, it was a moneymaker because all the people who lived there were were wealthy individuals and they all took care of the mailman at Christmas because the mailman, they always had favors to be done, you know, forward this, don't forward that and, you know, all kinds of stuff. They would give us all kinds of uh, things to do and, you know, they would always take care of you monetarily. So... I said, no problem. So then my, my boss brings me in the office and says, but you got to do me a favor. And I said, what's that? He says, whatever you do, don't go down in that damn basement. Please don't go down in that basement. I'm telling you, if you have to use the bathroom, jump in your car and drive back to the post office. Don't go down in that basement. So I was like, okay, okay, okay. You know, I kept asking him, why, why, why? And he says, well, I don't want to get into details. Just listen to me. Don't go down in that basement. And then my supervisor was a really good guy at the time. And I, but I knew why, but I wanted him to tell me, but he wouldn't tell me. So I'm holding down the route and, you know, holding it down. It's, it's September comes around. I'm all, you know, first it was like, man, I think I got it in August and September. And, you know, I got to be brutally honest with you. There was days when the doorman wasn't there. He was on lunch or whatever. Uh, for whatever reason, he was on lunch. He wasn't at the door. And the maintenance, and the maintenance guy wasn't around. And I would have to take accountable pieces down to these people who were down by the pool, you know, whether it was a certified mail or registered or insured piece, whatever. I need a signature with it. And these people were home and I didn't want to leave them a notice and have to upset them to come to the post office to get it and stand online when I know they're there. Plus, you know, I'm looking to get a nice tip at Christmas. <laughs> so I'm going to be brutally honest. And these people were great people. I mean, they would always invite you down for lunch. You got you get a lunch, right? Come downstairs. We're having we're cooking hot dogs, we're cooking hamburgers. You know, have an ice cream, have a soda. You know, we're making ribs. They're always doing something every single day during the summer. There was uh, some kind of barbecue going on down by the pool. You know, it was a free meal every day if I wanted it. You know, most of the time I just grabbed the soda. But you know, let's face it, there was times I had a hot dog and a hamburger. But um. So I was going down there all summer long and, you know, giving the accountables to these people and everybody taking care of everybody. And usually when the doorman's not there, you have to take the, the packages and you have to drop them off in front of each person's apartment. And when you have to do that, because this is a really big building, it has a north side and a south side, two separate elevators, and it's like six stories high and it's a really big building. It takes up almost the whole block. And when you have to do that, you're stuck in that building for an hour or two. You know what I mean? Easy, you can't yeah. Get out of, yeah, because you got to go to every single floor because everybody ordered everything. They, these people had money and they, everything came over the mail. And then the mailboxes were really tiny. So sometimes you would have to rubber band the mail with the magazines because they got so much and drop them off in front of the door if the, if the doorman wasn't around. Thank God the doorman was usually around. So I would just put the notice in the box, you know, check with the doorman. 
But anyway, I'm doing this route. I'm holding it down. Now September turns into October, and Halloween rolls around. And I find it funny that this particular building that celebrated every holiday under the sun and always decorated the building for everything, whether it was Valentine's Day, St. Patty's Day, or you know whatever, uh, Thanksgiving, there was no decorations in this building. No Christmas, no Halloween decorations. And there was a lot of children who lived in this building. I just couldn't understand why the rec room wasn't decorated, the building, the lobby wasn't decorated. But I said, you know what? I'm not going to say nothing. It's none of my business. So that particular day, like I said, it was Halloween, and um, the doorman wasn't there. He was nowhere to be found, and I had to use the bathroom. So I rang the superintendent's building buzzer, and he was nowhere to be found. So, you know, I'm debating, you know, what am I doing? Am I going to drive all the way back to the post office and wait a, waste a half hour time? Or am I just going to go downstairs and use the bathroom downstairs and get it over with? Yeah. I've been downstairs a hundred times during that summer. I've never had anything happen to me. It was always a good experience. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go downstairs. That's the kind of guy I am. I'm going to use the bathroom downstairs. I'm not going to waste that time. So I went downstairs and doing my business. And all of a sudden I start hearing chanting. I start smelling smoke. I get off. I shut the light off in the bathroom. I get off the toilet. I crack the door just like a tiny bit. I peek outside and sure as shit, there's four to six people in hoods with the pentagram smoking. There's black smoke billowing out of the pentagram. And I just closed the door and leaned up, locked it, leaned up against it and said the Lord's Prayer about 600 times. And I just sat there for like an hour, an hour and a half with my back to that door. And I was not going out. At this point, the, the, the doorman comes back from lunch. The superintendent is cleaning the lobby. He sees all my mail bags and everything. <laughs> and he says, wow, you know, where's Al? He's been here a long time. They just figured I was delivering packages around the building. But after an hour, an hour and a half, it still was nowhere to be found. So they said, you know, let's go downstairs and see if he's downstairs. So they went, they came downstairs and they knocked on the bathroom door and he's, uh, and I could hear this, you know, his Spanish accent and he's, Al, are you in here? Cause the light was off. The door was locked. They thought maybe I was locked in the bathroom. I couldn't get out, yeah. you know? And I said, you know, Julio, is that you? And he's like, yeah, it's me and Jose, you know, we're here. Are you, do you need, need us to break you out of the bathroom? We locked in. I was like, no, no, no. So then I told him what happened when I came out of the bathroom. I said, I told him, so we went over to where the pentagram was that was lit on fire, but there was no evidence that there was ever a fire in that part of the parking garage. But when we looked up on the ceiling, you could see all the black soot from the smoke on the ceiling. And then Julio said, you know what? I got to clean this off before these people come home from work. Now, my gut tells me that those people who were doing the conjuring in that basement are the same people who lived in that building. Because you can't get into that building if you don't have the key to get in or you don't have the code to the garage right. to open up the garage door. So I know the doorman wasn't nowhere to be found, so no one's getting in. I know the super was nowhere to be found. So my gut tells me whoever was doing that lived in that building. So after that, I asked the super to bring me up to David Berkowitz's apartment. I wanted to see the apartment. So I went into the apartment. He brought me up. And I'll tell you, the closer you got to his floor, the heavier the, the, the air felt. 
And when that elevator door opened up, I thought for sure the devil was going to be standing there waiting for us. And we got off the elevator and we walked, and you walk down this long corridor and you could just feel the heaviness as you go down. And I'm thinking to myself, how do these people who live on this floor not feel this energy? How do they not, you know, feel this heaviness? Now, the super would not go into David's apartment. He said, listen, I'll open the door for you. You can go and look around, but I'm not coming in there. I want nothing to do with that apartment. They weren't renting out anymore. They were using it as storage, but he never stored anything in there because he wouldn't go in it. So I went in and I went in the foyer and I went in the kitchen. I went in the bathroom, the living room, dining area was the heaviest, was one of the heaviest parts because his back windows overlooked where that dog was, Sam's dog, German Shepherd. And then I went into the bedroom and the same thing with the bedrooms. The bedroom was just off to the living room and, and the same thing with the bedroom. The bedroom was very, very heavy and you could feel like the heaviness in the walls. And I, I didn't know, I just couldn't understand how the people on either side or the people upstairs or the people below couldn't feel this heaviness that was in this apartment. This apartment would, there was darkness in that apartment, just darkness. And then, you know, Julio's freaking out, Al, you're right, all right, you're coming out, what are we doing? But a beep, but a poop. So I left, I, went, I left the apartment, I, I, got, I got a feel for it. You know, I just, curiosity killed the cat, I had to see it, I was there, you know. And I told my experience, and then I went out and I just continued to finish the route, and I did the route. And across the street from this apartment were a couple of um, duplexes. And it was this one little old Polish woman who lived on, a, on the second floor of the duplex. She had a ground floor and the first floor. And there was about maybe 25 steps that went up to the first floor. And then she had a, a duplex above her. And every day she would have either a cup of coffee or lemonade or a piece of cake or something waiting for me every single day. Because I would bring her mail. She had two mailboxes at the bottom of the steps. One for the downstairs apartment, one for the upstairs apartment. And what I would do is I would bring her mail upstairs for her and put it between the storm door so she wouldn't have to go up and down the steps because she was old. She was like 80 years old, you know? Yeah. And I was just did it out of the kindness of my heart. <clears throat> but I did it because she was a sweet little old lady and she always so and her so her way of thanking me was always having a wintertime coffee or hot chocolate. And then sometime it was lemonade or iced tea, you know, and always a piece of cake. There was always something there. So I asked her, I said, you know, do you ever hear anything about these devil worshipers that, you know, worship in the park? And she said, yes. She goes, as a matter of fact, when a couple of years ago, I had a young couple moving downstairs, a nice young couple, a professional couple. They moved in downstairs. And after about a year or so, the husband got hooked up with the devil worshipers in the park. And he just changed. She said he became very, you know, strange and uh she got pregnant and had the baby and one night he came home with all of this devil worshiping crew whatever they were called i forgot the name they used they had their own name some kind of church or something and he came home with them and he wanted to take the baby Ooh. and sacrifice the baby in the apartment to conjure up the devil Jeez. and the wife is fighting with the husband and the devil worshipers are fighting with the wife and the old lady upstairs hears all this commotion. She called the cops. The cops come in. They kick the door in. They lock everybody up. And they take the the woman, you know, take everybody to jail. The woman calls her parents and takes the baby and leaves and goes to the parents. 
But I guess all the time they were in there, they must have did some kind of conjuring spell or something because after they left, after the woman moved out with the baby and the husband went to jail, the Polish woman said she could always feel heaviness in the apartment downstairs. And she said even when there was no department was vacant and she was up in her apartment, she could hear banging on the ceiling and banging on the walls and the doors would slam and the lights would go on for no reason. And it just scared her to death. And like I said, it was a very Polish dominated area. And when she would bring these other Polish families in to rent the apartment, they would just feel the heaviness. And they was like, oh, no, bad mojo here. Yeah. And they would just leave. And at one point, I actually went at one point, a Polish priest came over from Poland and she got the priest to come to the house and do an exorcism. And he exercised that apartment and he blessed the house. And then after that, the apartment felt light and airy again. And I actually went into that apartment. It was a beautiful apartment. I mean, if I didn't have my own apartment, I would have moved in in a heartbeat because it was a gorgeous apartment. It was in a really nice section of town. And she, you know, I said, oh, well, you know, this is a very nice. I actually recommended it to another postal employee who ended up taking it. And he never had any experiences in it, but um, it took her like a year to get that thing cleansed and get that whatever was there out. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, that led to me and my wife went to the park one day. It was a beautiful, sunny day. And we went to the park one day and we had a picnic, you know, and... It was a gorgeous day. We're sitting there, and after a couple hours of eating and drinking and having a picnic and everything, my wife says to me, do you know where the devil-worshipping caves are? And I was like, yeah, you know, I've been to those caves when I was younger because this park had gone through a transformation. When it was first built by the millionaires who owned it, it was really, like, gorgeous, gorgeous park. And then in the 70s, they started doing rock concerts there, and the junkies kind of took over and the hippies and stuff like that. And it kind of crashed and burned. The city let it go. And it, but by the time we got back there later, and like in the 90s, it, would, it had been redone again. And it was back up to par. It was a really beautiful place. And so I said, sure, let's go. Let's put the stuff back in the car and then we'll go and I'll show you the caves. So as we're walking across this giant field, it, you know, looked like, uh, you know, a football field kind of field, and we're headed towards the back steps. And the steps, the, the back steps were called the Thousand Steps, and they just went on from the top of the park, through the woods, over the, over the aqueduct, and down onto the next block, which was one of the main thoroughfares, and... Um, their affairs. I can't get it out. <laughs> and, you know, but it was almost like two blocks worth of steps. So they called it the thousand steps. And in between those two steps, the aqueduct ran when they built this aqueduct where they brought water from the Catskill mountain region down to the city. So as we're walking down the steps, we get about uh, a quarter of the way down the steps and we hear this big whoosh go over us and felt like the rush of wings really big wings i mean seven eight foot wings came over us and we both ducked like we thought something had just swooped down on us and we both ducked 
And we both stopped dead in our tracks. And we looked at each other like, what the hell was that? And then we looked to the right on the aqueduct. And there was really nothing there but like a dirt bridle path. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But we were both looking as if we were seeing something. And I looked at her. She looked at me. And I, and I said, what are you seeing? And she said, I don't know, but I'm seeing something, you know, like in my mind's eye, I'm seeing something that looks like a devil, the devil, you know? And I said, yeah, me too. I said, maybe we should just skip the devil worshiping cage today <laughs> and I'll take you up to the bird cage. And they called it the bird cage because it looked like a giant bird cage, but they also called it the eagle's nest or the crow's nest. They had a couple of different names for it. But the kids like us, we called it the birdcage because it looked like a giant birdcage. So the birdcage, to get to the birdcage, we had to go from the north end of the park to the south end of the park. So we went back up the steps and we're walking down a road now. This is a paved road that the parks department used to drive around with the trucks to clean out all the garbage cans and clean up the park and so on and so forth. And we're walking down this road and we're walking again, maybe an eighth of a mile on this hike and the bird cage is maybe a half a mile away, a quarter mile away, something like that. And we're walking and all of a sudden we get that big whoosh again, whoosh comes over our heads. And again, we both stop, we both duck and we both stop and we're right in front of this giant oak tree to our right with this giant branch that went across the road but high up, this branch had to be like 50 feet up in the air. And it was a huge branch and there was nothing on it. Like there was no little branch to stick. It's just a straight branch that went across. And we're both looking and I'm looking at it and she's looking at it. And I turned to her and I say, okay, what are you feeling now? What are you seeing? You know, tell me what, tell me what you're feeling. And she says, I don't know if you ever seen the movie, The Gargoyles, she said. It was an old TV movie, cheesy TV movie that they made in the 70s about devil worshippers and gargoyles and demons and all this other stuff. But the lead gargoyle looked like the devil himself with the horns and the bat wings and the whole nine yards. Mm -hmm. And she says, that's what I'm seeing up on that branch. Now, my wife is a few years younger than me. For her to, to talk about the gargoyles almost knocked me off my feet because I love that movie. It's one of my all-time favorite <laughs> movies, you know, as cheesy as it was. It was a great movie. And I was like, that, and, it's, and it was crazy because that was the same exact image that I had in my mind's eye was she, that she explained. She was seeing the same thing I was seeing. So I said, you know what? Forget about the birdcage today and the rest. Let's just get the hell out of this park. I don't blame you. And, yeah. And um, we left the park that day and that was like 30 years ago and we never went back. We never went back. And, and my turned out my in-laws ended up buying a condominium right across the street from the park. And when the kids were small, we would go over. We would always tell them, don't bring the kids in the park and use the playground that's in the condominium complex. Don't use the playground at the park. And they would always say, why? And so just don't like that park. Just don't bring them in that park. And so they never did, at least not that we know of. But right. um, it was it was a crazy. I mean, it was crazy experience. I mean, everything we experienced 
with that park and the devil worshippers. And like I said, if you open up that link and you want to post it and you go scroll down that link, you'll see the thousand steps and you'll see the bird cage, or they'll call it the eagle's nest or whatever. And you'll see the carriage houses with all the pentagrams that are upside down. They actually have these tunnels that ran underneath the park that they use for a water filtration system for the pool up at the park and the fountains and everything. And these tunnels, these devil worshippers would go down in these tunnels and just pull the lids over because there's miles of, of pipe under the, under these tunnels. And you could, you could actually walk them there like hunched over mm-hmm. and you could go down there and you could do whatever you want down there and no one would ever know you were down there. And a lot of the times my brother, at the same time that was going on, because I remember my brother saying, oh, you better be careful, because I was like 16 at the time, 17. You better be careful about Son of Sam. When you go out with your girlfriends and your cousins and you're all at Lover's Lane and, you know, this guy is killing all. And I was like, yeah, Son of Sam is killing everybody in the city. He's nowhere near Yonkers. The last place he's going to do is being Yonkers, you know what I mean? <laughs> and um, But my brother was a, a computer engineer for the hospital. And his um, office was up on the 14th floor and actually overlooked this, overlooked the park. And he said there was nights when he was up there, he would work the night shift. He said there was times when he was up there where he could see them having bonfires and hear like dogs being sacrificed and stuff like that and cats and just, you know, because you could just, you just knew they were up to no good. And, you know, like I said, back in the 70s and 80s, the cops wouldn't even go into the park to patrol it. You know what I mean? Yeah. They didn't want nothing to do with any of that stuff. So it was very strange. I mean, it was, I mean, my brother seen what was going on there. I've had that experience at that park. The, the building that David Berkowitz lived in was right across the street from that park. And my gut feeling, and I was talking to my brother and a few other people who know the history is that the guy who ran the cult, I forgot what his name was. But he really wasn't the leader of that cult. We believe that there was people in that building that were very rich, powerful people who were telling him what to do. And then he was telling his minions what to do. Because David Berkowitz always swore that he wasn't the only one killing these people, that there were other people out there helping him. And he talked about this devil worshiping thing. And what really got me with the story about Pete was Berkowitz was hearing uh, a dog talk to him, Sam, Sam's dog talking to him. And Pete was hearing this cat talk to him. You know what I mean? So there's definitely connection there. There was definitely some bad mojo there. You know, I haven't been in that part of town in 30 years now, except for when I go visit my in-laws. But we don't go nowhere near that. We don't even go down that street. We take the back roads in because we just don't want nothing <laughs> to do with that place. We really don't. You know, it's just a creepy place. Jeez. So the the dog um, that was a German Shepherd, right? I believe. I believe. Yeah, because Sam was actually a Yonkers police officer, mm-hmm. and I believe he had a, he had a retired police dog. Okay, would have been interesting yeah. if it was a black dog. You know, uh, where Pete was hearing the black cat. You know. Would have been interesting. Yeah, no, but- I know. I think, um, you know, don't quote me on this because it was a long time ago. Yeah. But I'm almost positive that it was a German Shepherd. Wow. Because I remember when I used to deliver that street, because I had to go down that private road 
And um, the only only people who were allowed to park on it is people who had permits for to, for those houses. And the mailman, because we used to have the mailman sign in the window of our cars, and the cops wouldn't ticket us because I would park on that street and I would deliver all of those houses from the rear. Great. And so, and then I would move the car down the block, and I would go to the next building, which the courtyard faced the aqueduct, like it was like on the other side of the where. Berkowitz's building was on the east side of the aqueduct. The next building that I went to was on the west side of the aqueduct. The aqueduct ran right in between them, and I would have to go through this courtyard. And this building was like a really old, gothic-looking building. Mm-hmm. It was creepy to begin with. Yeah. I had to go through the stone gates and the and the roaring fences, and you had to walk through this courtyard. And it was creepy to begin with, you know what I mean? But then with the, with the history of the park being right there behind it, yeah. made it even more creepier. But Do you know how old the building is? Which one? The the one... Um, Berkowitz's building? Yeah. I'm not really sure, no. I don't know when it was built. I'll have to look that up. I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah you can look it up because when I did the other interview, Brian was posting pictures of the building on on the chat in the chat room that night mm-hmm. so he had he had pulled he had actually pulled up pictures of Berkowitz being arrested at at the location and pictures of the building they actually changed the net the number of that building so people wouldn't because there were so many people coming by mm-hmm. to see the building and it was a private little one-way street yep. it was blocking up traffic because I remember the first day I delivered the mail there I was like, why does this building have an odd number to it when it's on the even side of the street? Yeah. It didn't make, it didn't make any sense to me. And that's made me question, what, what's, what's, what is this building? Why is this a building like this, you know? Hmm. And then, you know, one thing, started, one thing led to another. And, uh, you know, eventually all the history of the building came out, of course. I'm looking at a picture right now of that link that you sent me of the birdcage. Oh, you see oh, it now. Yep, yeah. Yeah. Um, if it's the one that I'm thinking, it's got a be- beautiful staircase leading up to it and it looks like fall Stone colors. Staircase, yep. Right? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's a gorgeous picture. Yeah. Beautiful place. Yeah. Wow. And below that stair, below that staircase, if you go down that staircase and to the left, it's like a conch shell kind of rock outlet hmm. and almost like sets up like a stage. Where they would do like um, plays from, you know what I mean? Plays in the, at night in the park or whatever. And they right. would use that for the echo and everything, the sound and uh, Shakespeare in the park kind of thing, you know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah. To me, that would make um, a good place to have wedding pictures, but how does it feel when you go there? Like you, you can feel the heaviness? Well, I haven't been there in 30 years. So yeah. I, do you- I, I mean, I never felt the heaviness in that park. And all the years that I was hung out there, because mm-hmm. you know, I did a lot of, I spent a lot of time there, a lot watching rock concerts and stuff as a kid. And a good friend of mine had a band that played there a lot. And I was a roadie. I would set up equipment for them. Yep. And I spent a lot of time in that park. And I never felt any dark or heaviness during those times. It was just that one time with my wife that just was beyond. It was just beyond. It could be also that you were trying to you were trying to find something and something I was trying to say you know it's not pl- it's not a place for you to be here right now yeah no they definitely did not want us looking for those caves that day yeah that, that was definitely this 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 the the impression I got like not today 
go yeah. just go away and i was like i don't i didn't know what that day was i don't remember if it was anything special to me it was just a beautiful saturday we were having a picnic in the park you know mm-hmm. and the crazy thing about it is the whole day was absolutely breathtaking not a cloud in the sky but as we packed up and we started to walk across that field towards the back steps mm-hmm. clouds rolled in it got very very dark and very very windy and it looked like a scene out of a hollywood movie <laughs> it was just and I, I mean, I, I swear to God, I swear on my mother's grave, I'm not making this up. It really had happened that way. And it was just crazy. Like, it was like a tornado. Of, uh, like We were in like a wind tunnel or something. It yeah. was just crazy. Wow. Just all the elements were there to make it extra creepy. Yes. And I think they, all those elements rolled in when that other thing came in, too. You yeah. know, maybe it was in the trees. And we heard us talking about what we were doing. And when it decided to go that way, it created this whole atmospheric effect where it changed the whole day from beautiful, sunny to cloudy and windy yeah. and dark and scary. You know, it really did. Wow. And you've never been back. <laughs> I've never been back. <laughs> I, you know, the guys on the team, they want to go there and investigate. I got a couple of guys who are just dying to go there and investigate. And now the chief of police is a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. So I could always reach out to him and say, hey, listen, we want to do this. Do we need a permit? Can you get me this permit? Could you let you guys know that we're going to be here on such and such a night yeah. so nobody gets arrested and this, that, and the other thing? And, you know, I got the means and the, and the way, the way and the means to get, to get there and do it officially without any problems. But, um, I really, I'll be really honest. I just don't want to go there. You know what I mean? I can't say that I blame you. Yeah. I just don't want to go there. It's above my pay grade. <laughs> if <laughs> you, you know if I mean? you do get the team to go, would you be interested in bringing the chief? Like, would he just in case, you know, things got real and. Well, I don't know. I mean, I would have to, I would invite him out. Absolutely. Cause yeah. I grew up with him, you know, in the same neighborhood. We grew up together. We went to school together in high school. I would definitely invite him out, but I don't yeah. know if he's into that stuff or if he would want to be associated with it, being that he's right. a police chief, you know what I mean? Yeah. He may just give me the blessing and say, hey, you got my blessing, but leave me out of it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Too many politics involved, you know? Yeah, but, for sure. Yeah, wow. and, and that's basically the whole story in a nutshell, you know? I mean, if you've got any questions, let me know, you know, don't hesitate to ask, but that's basically the stories that was Pete's story and my story and then my me and my wife's story all wrapped up in a nice little neat package it all that all coincided in that one like two block area it, yeah. or when I tell you it was only within two blocks all this stuff happened it was crazy now, do you know what would have been there in those two blocks prior to everything that's there like no, it was just park it was always park huh. it was like I believe in the early twenties, us uh, one of the um, lawyers from Manhattan bought the property, and he created like twenty acres. Uh, man, built a mansion with a twenty acre par, uh, twenty acres on the grounds. Mm-hmm. And then when he sold it, the next guy expanded it like another twenty acres. And every time someone else bought the property, they expanded it and they expanded. I think it's like sixty acres now or something like that. And like I said, it changed. The very first one was like a, a, a 
a Roman garden, and then it changed to be like a Japanese flower garden, then it changed to be like this Gothic cathedral, and then it changed again to be like a Victorian kind of era kind of thing. Right. So every time a different millionaire bought the property, they changed the grounds. Hmm. So be interesting to see in the future what it's uh, what it's going to be like. Well, I know they just spent a ton of money recently into fixing it up one more time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, uh, I've seen the photographs of the park now, and it's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, they do like um, concerts in the park now, but now it's like uh, orchestra kind of stuff, not rock concerts right. anymore. You yeah. Know? So it's like, you know, that kind of stuff now. But uh, it's a gorgeous place. It really is. I mean, a lot of people do wedding photos there. Yeah. Absolutely. Um not me, but <laughs> but I know a lot of people. Because the guy said to me, the photographer said, you want to go here? And I was like, no, we'll go anywhere but there, you know? Yeah. Because it's a beautiful view. You get you look over the Hudson River. You see the Palisades cliffs behind you. I mean, it's very picturesque. It's a gorgeous place. When, when I was going to school in Manhattan for photography, I spent a lot of time in that park taking pictures, you know? Um, because of the scenery was just so gorgeous, I mean. So, you know, and I was, a, I was big into scenery photography. You know, mm-hmm. I, I like, I like being in the woods. I like being in nature. So do I. I. Love the, yeah. yeah. I love the fact, you know, to see the, the flowers and all of that stuff. It's just, just, I don't know. It has a very calming effect on me. It makes me feel like that's where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. Same here. I just love uh, going like with my camera, taking pictures, especially if I come upon come upon a stream in the woods it's just so calming yeah and it's just it's just it's a, it's really a gorgeous place i mean hmm. you know, i believe they they that they knocked down all the carriage houses now and nature has taken that but i don't think there's any more carriage houses standing yeah. up and stuff like that but um you know the, the aqueduct is still there and if you know where you're going i think the caves are have all been sealed as well so Hmm. I mean, but if you know where you're going, you can find the caves. You just can't get in them anymore. Right. They probably seal yeah. them up for safety reasons, too. Yeah, yeah. They don't want to keep the kids out of it. Yeah. And, you know, they don't want any more of that nonsense going on there. You know, they kind of put a, put their put their foot down on that stuff, you know. So, yeah. especially after the Berkowitz thing, that really was like the strutter broke the camel's back because, like I said, he was definitely part of that cult. And... I believe, like what he said, that there was other people involved in those killings, but he took the rap for him because he was a scapegoat. And, you know, the cops got their man. You know, he had the 44 caliber gun on him. He had a machine gun in the car. He was going out to shoot up a whole uh, nightclub. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, jeez. So, yeah. I mean, if they didn't find that, and the only reason they got him is because they found, you know, they, they, had, they, were, they were checking on a parking ticket that happened not too far from one of the crime scenes, and it led him back to Yonkers. I'll tell you the truth, when when they, when they brought him in and I found out he was in Yonkers, I almost fell off my chair. <laughs> you know, I know my brother was always breaking my chops about it, but not in a million years did I ever think the guy lived in Yonkers. Yeah. You know? And we spent a lot of time with the Lover Lane, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. And those Lover Lanes, when it gets dark, they're a little, a little creepy and scary. Yeah. You know? It's all secluded, <laughs> especially when you got someone like that in the back of your mind. You yeah, know? no kidding. Yeah, Jeez. It's, it's it's scary. You know, it was a scary time, it really was. But Jeez. 
So, I mean, that's my story. I hope I hope I did it any justice. I hope it, you know you liked it. And I loved it. Listen, your listeners like it as well. I'm sure they will. It's very, very interesting. Wow. I just, I just can't imagine being in a place like that. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's an, it's an amazing place. Like I said, uh, you know, I don't know if there's still devil worshiping going on there. Yeah. Like I said, I haven't been there in 30 years, but um, who knows? That stuff seems to come around in cycles, you know, so yeah. I don't know. Indeed it does. Well, before yeah. before we sign off, why don't you tell us where uh, where people can find you? Okay, you can go to the Bronxville Paranormal Society. We have a website. We have a Facebook page. We have a Facebook group. We're on all social medias, Twitter, and everything in between. Also, we just created a couple of new groups. Brian and myself are co-directors of the North American Dogman Project, New York State Chapter. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. And um, we also created the New York State UFO Project. Again, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and, you know, join, join, be a member, join, join up. And um, we're going to do a lot. We got a lot of exciting stuff going on in, in the future, not only with investigations with the BPS team, but the stuff with the Dogman Project and the UFO Project as well. Right. Sounds like you're busy. Yeah, I'm busy. I'm trying to stay busy. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much, Al. Kat, it was my pleasure anytime. It was Just my pleasure as well. And I will do it for you at, at the drop of a hat anytime. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. You're welcome, sweetheart. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, we've made it to the end of another episode. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, take care of each other. And if you'd like to be on the show or have questions or comments, just drop me an email, paranormalheart13 at gmail.com. Paranormal Heart would like to extend a special thank you to PurplePlanet.com for supplying the music for the show. The views and opinions expressed on Paranormal Heart are those of the host and participants. 